So, welcome back everyone for season two, episode three of The Low Podcast. We're here today with Dame Moya Green, DBE OC. She's the former CEO of the Royal Mail, overseeing its privatisation from 2011 to 2015. She's the former CEO of Canada Post, where she trebled profits, and she was bestowed a Damehood by the Queen in 2018. Um, Moya, thank you so much for being with us today. Great pleasure. Um, so, was the, was the journey here okay? How, yeah. how are you feeling? Excellent. It was very easy, actually. That's lovely. Well, yeah. when was the last time you, you came to Oxford? Uh, not that long ago, probably, uh, let me just think, we're in May, so January. Oh, okay. I was doing a course um, on, uh, in one of the continuing education programs, and so mm-hmm. uh, I used to come up uh, once a week. It was very nice. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Very nice. Um, we, we heard that you're a fan of Seamus Heaney. Yes. Any favourite poem in particular? Gosh, no, not really. But I, I mentioned to you... Uh, you know, he, he was great reading his own poetry. Yes. It came across uh, in a different way than if you were reading it on your own, which is also mm-hmm. wonderful. And sadly, just before he passed away, I heard him read uh, for us at a club in downtown London, the Athenaeum Club. And it was wonderful. But I can't give you a specific poem offhand. No, that's really nice to hear. Yeah. So would you like to tell us a little bit about how you got into the business world? Uh, what sparked your interest in it and how did you make made your way up to the sort of success that you have today? I got into the business world in a very unusual, through a very unusual path. Um, when I, I was a senior federal civil servant in Canada for the first half of my career and um, I had a really wonderful uh, career there. I, I moved uh, pretty well, nicely. The progression was good and interesting. After I had served in what is the cabinet office for Canada, it's called the Privy Council office, I was asked to take on a special assignment in the Department of Transportation. I think transportation is a strategic industry everywhere, but when your country is a continent wide, uh, it's absolutely vital. But the government owned everything in those days. They owned the airports, they owned the air navigation system, they owned the railway, Canadian National, they owned the airline. And uh, they really couldn't afford to because Canada had hit a wall in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, we were selling, you know, Canadian bonds and there was nobody on the other side of the bid. And so it really was, it just closed. (laughs) And... Finally, the Canadian government had to do something about its uh, borrowing and uh, its over-expenditure, which had gone on for a long period of time. So long story short, they sent me over to the Department of Transportation to put together a strategy which would allow critical transportation infrastructure to be financed by outside investors because they just Mm -hmm. couldn't afford it. But there were other problems with the transportation sector. Government ownership meant that you know, funds came in a uh, you know, less than continuous way. And so infrastructure that needed to be kept up and made you know, vital uh, to serve the shippers and the people of the country uh, was falling into disrepair everywhere. So not only did it need ongoing operating uh, capital, it needed capital to rebuild and to, uh, and to get itself in its shape for another 40 or 50 years. Mm -hmm. So that program led to all kinds of 
uh, interactions with many banks around the world. And as a result of the last bit of the program, which was the privatization of CN, Canadian National, the National Railroad, I was invited to join some of these banks and I chose to join TD Securities uh, in the infrastructure finance uh, area. And so that's how I get went from you know, mm -hmm. government to business. And after having done that and done some very big capital raisings, I moved then into retail banking. And then by that time, uh, a really wonderful business person, uh, Paul Tellier, who had been the uh, CEO of Canadian National when I was leading the effort on behalf of the government to privatize it, he was at that time trying to rescue Bombardier, which was going through a, a pretty rocky patch financially. And he asked me to come and help him in that restructuring. So that's how the route to business mm -hmm. happened. And after that, I got invited to join uh, Canada Post as its mm -hmm. CEO. It's quite fitting, I think, that you sort of began with outside investment for a public service. And then that was sort of one of the hallmarks of your career with Royal Mail. Which um, yes. I suppose leads us on to the topic of the Royal Mail. That IPO happened in 2013. You joined in 2010. Is that right? Correct. Um, what problems did you see in the Royal Mail upon taking the role? It had apparently, uh, sorry, reported negative cash flow for four years running prior to your appointment. So, what were the big problems that you saw sort of set out to uh, begin to solve? Was privatization already an issue? Privatization was already in the cards because, in fact. Successive governments had tried to privatize Royal Mail mm -hmm. and it had not succeeded. And shortly before I arrived, you know, the company had spent at least a couple of years trying to get outside capital. But the deal in that case, it was a private equity deal. Mm -hmm. The deal really uh, left all the risk with the government and uh, it fell apart because um, it just didn't work as a, as a deal. Um, so there, there was still um, a desire to put Royal Mail on a, uh, on a footing which would allow it to, to attract outside capital. But successive governments had that desire, but they never really did anything with the Royal Mail that would attract outside capital. So at the time I arrived, it had plans to modernize its operation, but it had not done that. It had plans to modernize its technology, but again, that had not really been started. Uh, it had a really terrible relationship with its employees and its unions. You know, in mm. fact, in the year before I arrived, there were more days lost to strikes at Royal Mail than the entirety of UK business. I think it was something like 600 days lost to strikes. Mm. And this was a perennial, and it is to this day, a, a very big problem for the, uh, the company. Because if you're not able to have a cordial relationship with your unions and your people, there's nothing that you can do that will get you the change that the company needs to have in order to be sustainable. But they had a terrible relationship with their unions. You mentioned they were negative cash. Mm -hmm. They hadn't been profitable in their home market, the United Kingdom, for a decade. They had a huge pension liability. So any one of these problems would be a showstopper for outside investors. 
And so the desire to privatize Royal Mail was not met with a cogent, sensible plan that would lead to a company that would attract outside investment. So there was a lot of work to do. And um, I liked the desire to privatize Royal Mail because it at least gave us a framework for what we needed to focus our attentions on. Yeah. And uh, that was the pension. You know, that pension was not going to deliver for all the people who depended on it if we could not get it on a stable footing. And there was no way that the cash generation capability of this company was ever going to be able to give you a, uh, a, a stable pension. Its deficit was, I think at that time, if my memory serves me right, was about 12 billion. And even with a lot of forbearance from the pension regulator, where they were giving the company a ridiculous 38 years to try to get the pension into a stable position. They were doing that in the hope that the government would take the historical pension and therefore the company would be able to afford the pension going forward. But none of that had happened. So the pension was a showstopper. The operational um, archaic nature uh, of the way in which they carried on the business was a showstopper. They had a good I think they had a good plan for that. They just could never get it implemented because mm -hmm. the relationship with the employees and the union just would not allow that change. It was a big change. It would not allow that change to happen, even if it was essential for the future of the company. And then, you know, finally, um, the profitability situation, the negative cash situation, those are very big turnoffs for any group of outside investors. So what, what it did, though, for us is it told us, okay, these are the big problems, and they have to be one by one solved. You have to have a deal with the union. You have to have a way forward to uh, implement change in the operation. You have to have new technology. You have to start generating cash. It has to be profitable in its home market. And none of those things were ever going to happen if you were not able to get a deal with the union. Mm -hmm. Um, during your tenure, there were strikes organized by the CWU in 2017. Um, looking back, do you think there was anything you could have done differently to improve relations with the CWU? Well, actually, it probably sounds uh, impossible to believe, but I am thought of as the CEO that did have a good relationship yes. with the CWU. <laughs> but I think all of that says is it was very difficult to have mm. a smooth relationship with the CWU. Uh, but what I did manage to achieve was uh, I never had a national strike. I had lots of threats of national strikes mm. before the privatization. I had lots of regional work stoppages, but I was always, I, I, I made a, a, a sort of a decision very early on that I would spend a lot of time out in the field, getting to know people, getting to know the regional representatives of the union, getting to know our own you know, regional managerial capability, uh, I would do that also because even if you do have good numbers on what's happening in the operation, it doesn't really give you the temperature of things in the operation. But also I met with the union pretty, pretty regularly. Uh, and certainly I think the union would say that if they ever wanted to speak to me or meet with me, I, I was there. Uh, I did manage to get a three-year no-strike agreement with the CWU, which is unheard of in the United Kingdom, mm. and it certainly was unheard of for uh, the CWU. 
you know, we had to pay for it, of course, but you have to pay for any part of industrial peace. And, uh, but I felt as long as we were resolving disputes without stopping the operation, had to put in place different ways to resolve disputes because when you've got 170,000 people in all of those many locations, you are going to have disputes, even if you've got you know, really reasonable people at all levels of the organization, and sadly you don't always have reasonable people at all levels of the organization. I suppose it's part of like, the human condition to have dispute, especially at such a large amount of people. It mm. absolutely is. You, you're just, people have to recognize it's never going to go completely smoothly. People, their lives change. What was acceptable to them one year may not be acceptable the next year mm. because of changes in their, in their lives. And also change is hard. And with a logistics company like Royal Mail, in order to get it up to a platform that was, I wouldn't use the word modern, but that was going to be reasonable. You were going to able, you would be able to capitalize on whatever opportunity you could see. It's never going to be Amazon, you know, which is starting from scratch. But it was going to be reasonable. That was going to mean a lot of change for a lot of people. So I, I think the three-year no-strike agreement and the recognition that there were other ways to solve disputes that didn't harm the future of the company as much as a work stoppage does. I think that was a, a, a pretty good thing. But you know, you, po you point out rightly that it's, it's a, you have to be doggedly determined mm. to try to keep things moving at Royal Mail. It's mm -hmm. very difficult. Did you find that um, sort of the modernizing aspect clashed with the traditions and the sort of conventions of the unions? Because they're so sort of important here in, in Britain. Yes. Especially, yeah. Yes. And, you know, and it's understandable. Uh, I think unions would like people to have a kind of stability which is just not consistent yeah. with the transformation that operations have to be willing to absorb. It's just not. And so I understand because I understand people would like that kind of stability in their lives. They want to know what time they come to work. They want to know what their shift rota is. They want to be paid. There's a benefit load at Royal Mail that is just huge. Uh, but the company has to be profitable in order to do all of those things. And so there was an expectation that if it stayed in government ownership, the government would be prepared to cover 300, 400 million pounds of losses every year. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, that was no longer possible, not even in the UK, to, mm -hmm. to fund those kinds of losses. So it, it's, it is understandable where uh, unions are coming from, but it is not realistic, not in the current situation. And it won't be. It will, the company will never be successful if it is not able to buckle down and, and change the operation. As the world is, um, you touched on modernization, um, as the world is becoming increasingly digital um, and with such a large scale of operations for the Royal Mail, I saw that uh, Royal Mail has around 26 billion deliveries a year, which is astounding. Mm -hmm. um, what opportunity to see for other logistics um, organizations, other post postal organizations remain re re uh, relevant and competitive within the near future? It's one word, parcels. Because, you know, nobody knows uh, the geography of a country and how things move in that geography better than posts do. 
Because in fact, a large part of the transportation infrastructure that we have in the United Kingdom or everywhere was built because it was really important to get letters to every single address in that country. So nobody understands that better than uh, posts, not just Royal Mail. Royal Mail did happen to teach the whole world how to do this, but everywhere they do. They're, they're very strong uh, logistics companies and even mapping services were driven off it, you know, postal operations. But a lot has changed in transportation and certainly in technology, and certainly a lot has changed in retail. Uh, Amazon was a game changer. Retail will never be the same. Um, you know, Amazon made it possible for you to order whatever you want in the comfort of your home, have it delivered to your home. Now they couldn't do that everywhere because they needed, uh, you know, uh, a density of operation in order for it to work. But, you know, they could do it pretty darn well. And of course, they just got better and better. They had fantastic technology, their delivery uh, uh, and, their, and their warehousing operations are state of the art. Uh, you know, people are really conducting a technology system in these uh, warehouses. And so they took over retail. But they made parcel delivery a very, very big thing. It used to be that parcels were either small envelopes that business was sending to each other, or they were private things that one family was sending to another family, birthday presents and things like that. It wasn't all retail. Well, in the United Kingdom now, I would say 20% of the retail spend has got to be online retail because it was approaching that when I was there and I left in 2018 mm. and it's probably leapfrogged as a result of COVID. But that's a huge operation and it's a huge opportunity for posts uh, because if they can chin themselves up to change their operation, to deploy technology at a faster rate than they have been able to do, if they can retrain people fast enough and if people will accept the change, that's the most important part. Parcels, there is nobody gonna be better at delivering a parcel than a UK postal worker because those people, they're mostly men, some women, should have been a great job for women because of the hours, but they're still mostly men. But the, the men and women of the UK Post are some of the absolute best, most reliable people you will ever in your life meet. And they should be number one in parcel delivery. I used to say to Amazon, you don't need to build a network here in the UK. Let us be your partner. But because we were so slow to embrace the sort of changes, they decided to build their own network and they built a brilliant network here in the UK. Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think you kind of tried to shift this focus of the Royal Mail then to compete with Amazon? And how do you see this relationship developing in the future now that we've got such huge amounts of um, technological advancements with AI and potentially um, robots, that kind of thing? I think that they should be partners with Amazon because Amazon is such a big retailer, first and foremost. The logistics system was part of the business model. But the logistics systems that they built, which is brilliant, uh, was meant to support, you know, we will supply you anything you want. Mm -hmm. And my husband practically keeps them in business and he buys everything from, 
you know, rat poisoned shovels. I mean, <laughs> if, I mean, I That's don't know. One day delivery is it, insane. It, it, it is absolutely, Im, you know, just so impressive. But I think Royal Mail should be a partner to Amazon. I would have loved to have seen Amazon take uh, a position in Royal Mail to solidify that kind of partnership. But if Royal Mail wants to be a good partner to to a company like Amazon, it has got to be really top-notch at parcel delivery. And parcel delivery operations are different than mail delivery. You know, letters have been in decline for 25 years. So the handwriting has been on the wall. But the parcels opportunity has been huge ever since Amazon changed the structure of retailing around the world. Thank you. That's really interesting. Um, I think now we're going to kind of shift the focus. We've got about 15 minutes left. And um, it's something that I'm sure you've asked a lot about. Um, the fact that you're a quote-unquote woman in business. And first of all, I wanted to ask you if you've heard the term or what you think about the term woman in business and if you think that's an um, something that's helpful towards bringing uh, equality in the business world? Well, we certainly have a lot of work to do there because when I was uh, at Royal Mail, I think there were only five FTSE 100 CEOs mm -hmm. at that time. It's probably a little bit better now, but it's not that much better. We've made great strides in getting women interested in business and in getting women in lots of the functional areas of business, you know, whether it's marketing or human resources, uh, even finance, we've made lots of strides. We've got more work to do in some of those areas. Uh, but we're not getting women sufficiently on the CEO track. We've made fantastic progress here in the UK in you know the past 10, 15 years in getting women on boards. But I, I probably am a little bit um, of a, uh, a different thinker with respect to women on boards because while I think it's nice that women get on boards, I really think the decision-making of a company, the success of a company depends upon the executive team. And so we need to get more women into roles that will make them credible when CEO positions come up. So we, I, 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 um, I really feel that I stood on the shoulders of giants who prepared me. I had great mentors who gave me big, meaty, gritty assignments so that when an, a CEO opportunity came up, at least I was a credible candidate because I had done meaty, gritty things. I'd raised a lot of money. I had restructured big operations. I had dealt with big industrial relations problems. So I think women have to be willing to take on those kind mm -hmm. of roles. And, and I think there are lots of mentors out there, lots of women, lots of men, who would be willing to be mentors for women that want to take on those roles. But we do seem to have a systemic problem mm -hmm. that women are not getting those assignments yeah. and they're not getting the CEO chair. Do you, do you think that the, the kind of solution, and so I mentioned at the beginning this term woman in business, trying to promote women in business. Do you think stuff like um, gender quotas and kind of quote unquote forcing women into it is, is it an effective way of promoting gender diversity and equality in leadership positions? 
Well, it certainly helped me. You know, when I was in the public service, I would never have gotten some of the jobs that I got unless, you know, Title VII in the United States hadn't meant that we were a big, Canada was a big trading partner with the U.S. We, as a, as a byproduct of that, uh, you know, the federal government had in its procurement and in its, uh, in the, in the areas that it controlled, you know, it had to be open to affirmative action. But it's very controversial here. It's not as controversial in North America. It's taken as a kind of a given. Yeah. Although they haven't done hugely better at getting women into the CEO slots. Uh, they've done a bit better. Uh, I, I do think that affirmative action did help me. It helped me get roles in the federal public service that were hard roles, meaty, risky roles that I probably wouldn't have been considered for. And also what helped me was I had great mentors. So they would put, you know, a little word in the air if they heard about something coming up that was kind of gonna play to my strengths, if I can put it that way, they, they would always put, put a word in for me and say, look, we've seen her do this, we've seen her do that. We think, yeah, that's a big job, but we think that she'd do it really well. So all of those things help, but at the end of the day, you've got to have boards and you've got to have women themselves who are up for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the bad things about social media is the trolling that goes on. Mm-hmm. And it, it is appalling. And I, I don't know how that happened because in traditional media, you know, that, that cannot happen. We, we can't be anonymous. If you want to say something, of course you can, but you have to send a letter in and you have to prove that you are who you are. And you can't just, you know, be vituperative. And what kind of trolling um, do you mean? Like any examples? or? Um, well, like... pe- people, are, people are very quick and uh, very offensive online mm-hmm. yeah. in ways that they would never be in person or in traditional media. And that turns lots of people off. It's certainly turning uh, lots of people off politics, but it's turning women off particularly. And I think uh, you gotta have skin like a rhinoceros these days. Also, the CEO slot, the buck stops with you. So even if you tried to do everything, even if you were risk managing till the cows come home, and you had identified where you know there could be quicksand and these days, it's it's really hard. Uh, things happen inside your company that even if you're on the ball, you don't necessarily know about. And these brush fires, which we always had, they become forest fires now overnight because of the combined force of social media and activism. Employee activism is a real thing. So all of these things I've combined, I think, to mean that uh, women themselves are not putting their hands up the way I did and say, look, you know, I'd like to give that a go. I, I don't think, I don't think yeah. they're as quick to do that. On, on that point, um, a lot of our listeners are sort of women around Oxford who sort of would like to follow your career path. If you had any sort of one piece of advice, really, that you could give to someone our age um, who's a woman who wants to follow your path, well, what sort of advice would you give? Do it. Just go for it. You know, don't hold back. And um, 
there are going to be lots of problems in every job. Okay, you know, you're going to have to manage work and family responsibilities everywhere. So people think if you're a writer, for example, I'm at least home. Well, ask some of the great female writers how difficult it was to get their books done while they were looking after children and trying to prepare meals. They, they, they found it really hard and some, sometimes they were writing into the wee hours of the morning. So this fear that you cannot manage your family is going to be with you no matter what job you have. And I, I think, uh, therefore, taking big meaty jobs where what you do makes a difference, those are the jobs that prepare you to be the CEO. And uh, just believe in yourself and do it. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't worry so much about it. You know, people, women have a tendency to think, I have to be brilliant in every category. Men will say, you know, if I'm pretty good in most of the categories and I miss off on one or two, that's still good. I would say to women, don't question yourselves so much. Just go for it. And there are lots of mentors out there who, who will help you. Well, you mentioned for um, a lot of traits like having skin like a rhinoceros and self-belief and all that sort of thing. What characteristics and personality traits do you think makes a good leader in general and something somebody could look to procure? to set them up for those sorts of positions? I think you gotta listen a lot. Listen. Listen a lot. Yeah. You yeah. gotta, you know, be willing to just listen a lot. Guard your counsel until you're ready to make a decision. And yeah, decisions have to be made with imperfect facts and information. So get used to that. You're, you know, you're not going to have everything. I suppose, um, have you ever, in that sense, skin like a rhinoceros, have you ever made a big mistake and how do you kind of bounce back from that sort of thing? Oh gosh, I've made lots of mistakes. You know, you're just, you're human. You just do make mistakes. Mm-hmm. You you handle things sometimes awkwardly, yeah. more awkwardly than you wished <laughs> yeah. you had because yeah. you... I think you can lift barriers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's super important to hear, like uh, somebody sees someone like you who's had such a successful career, and they often think, oh, they must have done everything perfectly, you must have Definitely gone through not. your career and you knew exactly what to do and believed in yourself at every moment. No, I, that, is, that is just not true. I used to second-guess myself all the time. And I didn't handle everything, you know, as brilliantly as I could have. And I'm still a person that looks in the mirror and when something was said to me, I still say, geez, I wish I would have said that instead of what I did <laughs> yeah. say. You know, so, uh, but that happens. I think if you have a good circle around you, uh, I, I remember saying this to the leader of the Oxford Union when I met her, you know, you are going to fall off your horse if you're doing anything in this life. It, it's not all going to go smoothly. But if you've got a nice group around you, good friends who tell you the truth, Mm-hmm. Tell you, yeah, that wasn't very good, boy. Mm-hmm. And who, but they dust you off and they put you back on a horse. I, I feel like that's the kind of community we're trying to build here as well. Yeah, well, you gotta have that in life, and you gotta have that no matter what job you're in, and you gotta have that when you're a CEO too, because if there people are telling the truth, you miss things. Even if you're on your game, you miss things. You. You thought you understood something, but you didn't. 
You don't handle things perfectly. You get things downright wrong. Hopefully it's not gonna dump the, uh, or sink the company, but you do get things wrong. You get timing wrong. You get people decisions wrong all the time. You can't have too many of them because that will sink the company. But uh, I would say you, you have a group of people around you. Make sure you have them in any job. Uh, that you trust. They're not going to be selling anything to the newspapers the next day. And uh, they'll probably be a smart and wise group and they will be your posse. Yeah, I mean, the thing is what actually we've kind of noticed working together on projects as friends initially mm. and still as friends. It, it, it actually <laughs> does, it, it does yeah. kind of put a strain on the friendship as well. So my question is, do you think it's, it's clever to, to work with friends or start businesses with friends? I do because, you know, starting a business is just so hard. You you're feeling your way. Mm-hmm. It's it's made out of a combination of hope and energy, mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of both. So a friend, if it's if this is a really good friend, uh, a they're going <laughs> to they're, they're going to share the aspiration, but you they're also going to be truthful. Yeah, yeah. And if it's a good friend the truth will will win out and the friendship will survive yes it puts a strain on the friendship but it probably makes the business better yeah yeah so, with with ollie and i for example we have these like really heated discussions about the future of the podcast where yeah, for about we'll, an hour we'll, end up, fine. we'll end up shouting at each other but we found like by the end of those we've actually come up with the best idea from, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah. you um you said you're retired now and you're... Sorry, this is going to link back. Sorry, it sounds like a huge shame. You said you're retired now and you're working on mentoring a lot of CEOs. Um, do you find that often, of course, the super hard work and everything, CEOs tend to be quite isolated. Is that one of the bigger problems for them? It is. That I'd say that is a really big problem because the buck stops with them. The little brush fires turn into forest fires so quickly. Even if you are on your game... You just can't know everything that's going on. You are constantly putting in processes to, you know, try to head many of these problems off at the pass. Lots of times processes don't work. People don't have confidence in them. So I think CEOs are very lonely and more so today than when I was coming through. Mm-hmm. Because, again, this this combination of employee expectations are different now than when I was a more junior executive. The social media environment is, you know, it's a kind of a treacherous environment. You, you have to be pretty sure-footed to navigate well in that sort of a world. So yes, they are lonely. You know, people are saying, well, that's what the board is for. It's a rare CEO that is going to uh, have that sort of a relationship with their board or even their chairman for that matter. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the friend, they, they all of them do have the posse group, the support group that I'm talking about, but sometimes it's a problem that you cannot share with a friend mm-hmm. for a whole lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. The friend you know, may have really good judgment and may be very trustworthy, but they may not actually know about the area that you are trying to chart a path through. 
So this is where old timers like me can be helpful because even if I haven't had exactly the same problem, I've had something similar and I have a big enough network where I can put them on to somebody that that's their, you know, that's their daily, their daily uh, mainstay is that kind of a problem. I think so much of it comes down to emotional intelligence, doesn't it, for CEOs in terms of the management of people and, and stuff like that, being able to deal with them. Yes, you do have to have emotional intelligence and you do have to listen, but lots of times two people can listen to the same thing and they will hear quite different things. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be on the, on the lookout for that too. Even if you are listening, you may not have heard it you know, because people mm. can can be quite obtuse sometimes in their manner of communication. And sometimes they're not going to tell you. The, the last person they're going to tell is the CEO. Uh, so sometimes it comes to you secondhand and many months later. And so then you've got, you know, people uh, layering into the original communication new things or more things. So I, I think it's hard, uh, even if you do have emotional intelligence, but also if you're trying to turn around a company and you only have a certain timeline in which it has to be done, it has to be done successfully or else the thing is going to fail. You have to be quite performance oriented and you have to be willing to point out just like you are doing mm-hmm. when you know we're at a new stage in our business and the performance has got to come up yeah, or the performance yeah. has got to yeah. be different that's, that's and and that that is just a reality you know with every passing day there's going to be some part of the enterprise which is going to need to get its game up and so people you've got to be able to tell people that this is not good enough it might have been good enough two three years ago but now where we need to go we need a different level we need a different capability and sometimes sadly that means that you have to part company with people and you know that's also a a, a reality in business there there are lots of reasons and you can part company with people so that they're not crushed and you can but but that is a reality so i think having performance conversations there you you have to be clear and if you're clear it's going to be understood by the person receiving it but it's not a happy communication you know it's not because you're you're trying to get somebody to let you know can you get to this other new level that's not a happy well Moya thank you thank you so much for coming on (laughs) I think we're coming to the end of our time together that you've given us uh, so much of value already so we all really appreciate you coming on uh, and talking to our listeners with us it Thanks was so a much. great pleasure and good luck with this thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much good for you do you have any concluding concluding thoughts or, or message i think you're doing exactly the right thing you know you who are interested in letters and history and journalism this is exactly the right thing to go create your own content and you know, build an audience for your content, and uh, you will find that this is where the big networks are going to go because they can't do it anymore. They can't stay current enough. 
Yeah. So congratulations to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Uh, my pleasure.